0: And thank you, church, for your faithfulness and your commitment to the Lord and to our church family. Today, I wanna talk a little bit about where we're headed in our message. I'm calling this message Seven. Several weeks ago, Uh, Many of you will remember we had an event right up here on campus called Cars and Carols. It was an event where you drove in in your cars, you parked in our parking lot, and you tuned in your radio station, and we sang some Christmas carols together. And our two youth pastors, Nick and Luke, performed some marginal jokes and and created some antics on the platform. We had a lot of fun together. Um, There was laughter, there was some tears, there was worship happening. It was a wonderful event. And at that event, one of our members a woman by the name of Deb Davies. Some of you know Deb, and if you know Deb, you love Deb. Deb gave me a gift, and that gift was simply a picture, and printed on that picture were the seven distinctives of our church, seven distinctives that we went through some months ago in a series called We Are. And as I read through those distinctives, I I was struck again so deeply at how relevant they are. In fact, as I read them, they blessed me and challenged me and they re-energized me to walk with Jesus the way I believe he longs for all of us to do. And so today I was going to start a new series starting in the book of 1 Corinthians, that'll be next week, but the Holy Spirit said to me, no, push that series back one week and remind my bride who I am calling her to be. And so today we are reviewing and remembering and recommitting to these seven biblical callings that, that we at Cedar Mill Bible Church believe God is calling us to, to embrace. So that's where we're headed there's a lot to cover, so we're gonna dive right in. Here we go. Distinctive number one love extravagantly. We love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. Love extravagantly. We love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. Friends, this is where we start into our distinctives because. This is such a central calling in the Bible. In fact, loving God and loving our neighbors is according to Jesus, the greatest commandment for a person who will follow him. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandments to love. Jesus also tells us, and his followers in John chapter 13. By this, he says, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you follow me in this world, that you see me as Lord and King if you love one another. Even Jesus' disciples, his first followers, understood that love was essential, that love was central to following Jesus and walking with him in this world. And so they wrote things like this. This is First John chapter four. Dear friends, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And when we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus didn't just talk about love. He modeled it for us. He showed us what it looked like. And time and time and time again, People who did not expect priority from Jesus or attention from Jesus or or even for Jesus to notice them got something they didn't expect from him. They got compassion, they got direction, they got affection, they got attention from the God of the universe with flesh on. I think of Peter after his three-time betrayal and Jesus coming to him saying, I know what you've done, Peter. I know you messed up and I love you. I think of Zacchaeus, that man who was an outcast, that man who who didn't feel like he deserved love from anyone, that man who was told by the entire culture that he was undeserving of love. And I think of Jesus pointing him out and then going to his house and sitting down and having a meal with him, saying, You matter to me, Zacchaeus, I love you, even though you don't expect it, even though you don't think you deserve it. I think of the lepers that Jesus touched. I think of the woman at the well. I think of the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with her hair and with her tears. You see, over and over and over again, Jesus loved people when they least expected it and when they least deserve it. And that is our calling as well, church. You know, one of the reasons why I believe this list of distinctives sticks out to me so, so significantly, especially right now when I read it a couple weeks ago at Cars and Carols, it's because of the world that we're living in right now. Friends, can't we see, and I hope you'll see today, the Jesus way of living is more countercultural than maybe ever, maybe ever before in my entire life, right now. Our world right now says this, love people when they agree with you. Love people when they are aligned with you. Love people when they are thinking and acting and speaking and posting in a way that you approve of. But church, bride of Jesus Christ, listen to his words. Hear his calling and his challenge. This is from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount again. This is Jesus. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? are not even the tax collectors doing that. You see, Jesus says we must learn to love, not the way the world loves, but the way he loves, the way he has loved us, the way he has shown us how to love. And that's why distinctive number one for us is love extravagantly. We love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. Distinctive number two, hope relentlessly. We cling to the unmovable promises we have in Jesus. Friends, this distinctive always needs a little bit of explaining because the word hope in the Bible is not the same as the word hope we often use in English. You see, in the English language, hope is, is primarily about uncertainty When you hope for something, there's no certainty in it. When you hope for something, you're in a sense wishing for it. You're wishing that something will happen. We long for something that may or may not occur. That's how we generally, in English, use the word hope. Let me give you an example. This past Christmas, just a couple weeks ago, I took a big risk and I got my wife a Christmas present that I really hoped, that I was really wishing she would like but I also knew there was a chance she might be offended by it. Now, before I tell you what it is or what it was, uh, let me tell you this. My wife likes things clean. She was raised in a clean home. She is a clean person. And because I know her and because I love her and because I want to affirm her value of cleanliness, for Christmas this year, I got her a high-quality top of the line, very sleek and attractive dustbuster. That's right. Bold move, right? I got my wife a handheld vacuum cleaner for Christmas. And I was hoping that she would really like it. That's what I was wishing for. Well, let's just say I returned said vacuum to Best Buy last week. But here's the good news. One, I got a full refund really important. Two, we're still married. And three, I think she even still loves me, maybe even likes me. But, but here's the point. It's not that Pastor Dave needs husband training. That's not the point of this story. So let's just put that aside. You can give me husband advice later after service. Um, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about hope that we're wishing for something, that we often hope for things that that don't happen, that do not occur. But in the Bible, the word for hope means something different. Hope in the scriptures is not about something you're wishing for, but about something you know, something that you're certain of, something that you have certainty in. And because of that, you can now have security and peace and confidence in life, no matter what comes your way. This is how, how Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, set your hope, this is biblical hope, this like, root yourself in this certainty, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. You see, Peter's telling us, there is something that is certainly gonna happen. that is is 100% for sure on the horizon. You can count on it, you can bank on it, and it's salvation, it's redemption, it's restoration, it's God's grace poured out on you when Jesus Christ returns for his people. Put your hope in that because it is a 100% guarantee. And Peter's encouraging the church. He's saying, don't put your hope in things of this world that may or may not happen, and even if they do happen, well, just come and go. Put your hope in what Jesus has done for you. Put your hope in something that will last for all eternity. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. See, the call here is for us to hope relentlessly, unswervingly, that passage says, to be laser focused on the promises of God, not to let our hope drift from God to other things in this world. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 says, and we thank God that you continue to be strong because of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, when your hope is in Jesus, the scriptures tell us that you will find a strength that can get you through anything this world will throw your way. And that is a quality that's essential for God and his church, especially in these days. So we at Cedar Mill Bible Church, we will hope relentlessly. Distinctive number three, engage inclusively. Engage inclusively. Inclusively, we grow and reflect God's heart when we embrace people different than ourselves. Friends, this one really does just come back to our calling to become like Jesus. Because Jesus modeled this one for us so many times and oh so well. You see, for Jesus, it didn't really matter if you were a ruler or a beggar educated or uneducated, a harlot or a hero. Jesus, as it says in Matthew 22, was not swayed by appearances. And sometimes, friends, I think we forget, I think we miss how radical and how scandalous Jesus was in his, incl- in his inclusion of the other. Because rabbis in Jesus' day, they didn't choose fishermen, but Jesus did. Leaders in Jesus' day didn't value women, but Jesus did. Holy people in Jesus' day didn't eat with sinners, Jesus did. Jews in Jesus' day didn't engage Samaritans, Jesus did. The healthy in Jesus' day certainly didn't touch lepers, Jesus did. Friends, maybe this is why Jesus, when he was picking his core group of 12 disciples, invited zealots and tax collectors, people with radically different political perspectives. And he said, yeah, we're all going to be on the same team. And we're all going to work together for God and his kingdom in this world. Maybe this is why Paul, when he wrote to the Colossian church, said, "Here." In the church of Jesus Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Maybe this is why when the church was born, when it was birthed in Acts chapter 2, we're told that there were Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, friends, they were all there and they were all part of it. This is God saying to his followers, to his church, to you and me, in this new community, in my church, where people have been redeemed and restored by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, all are welcome. You see, friends, as people who are becoming like Jesus and making him known in this world, we are called to engage the people around us in this way because this is how Jesus came to engage us. He came that you and I might be included Included in relationship, included in love, included in truth, included in redemption and reconciliation. And so now our calling as those who have been included is to do what he did, to be his ambassadors in this world, and to go out and to engage inclusively, to reach across those lines that divide us. Because you will grow and you will reflect God's heart when you embrace people Different than yourself. Distinctive number four, relate authentically. We know God uses transparency for transformation. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus uh, tells a profound story about two different people. One is a tax collector, the other is a Pharisee. One is a, a highly esteemed religious person, and the other is considered by the country to be a traitor. And in this story, both men show up to the temple, both come to pray, to talk to God. And the Pharisee, he's out to impress. He's only gonna reveal the shiny and spiffy and sanctified sanctified parts of his life. That's because he wants people to be impressed with him. Here's what he says. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and give a tenth of all I get. That's the, that's the Pharisee. But the tax collector, his, his prayer is a little different. The tax collector, he's, he's not trying to hide anything. He doesn't show up to impress anyone, and he probably knows that he couldn't even if he tried to. And so listen to what he prays. This is what the tax collector says. It says, he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, A sinner. He would not even look up to heaven, but said, God, have mercy on me. I'm messed up. I'm broken. I got issues. I need help. And Jesus' point to you and me as he tells this story is, of course, God loves an authentic heart. God loves this man's honesty, his vulnerability, his willingness to be open and transparent about who he truly is. In our world, we we call that keeping it real. And Jesus loves to keep it real. Jesus loves it when his followers keep it real. Maybe this is why when Jesus was with somebody, he would very often put a finger on precisely that part of their life they most wanted to hide. You ever notice how Jesus does this? With Zacchaeus, Jesus says, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus, and let's talk about greed. Greed. With Thomas, he says, hey, Thomas, let's discuss this issue of your doubt. With Peter, he says, let's address your denial and your betrayal and your greatest failure, your most embarrassing moment. With that woman at the well, he says, let's get down to that place in your heart where you feel overwhelming shame. Let's talk about that. You see, friends, we live in a world where sin wants to tell us that we still need to hide. We still need to pretend. But the call, the challenge, the invitation from Jesus is that his people, his church, his followers can be different, can be honest, can be authentic about our struggles and questions and failures. Jesus says, with me and amongst you, you don't have to hide anymore. And that's why we here at Cedar Mill Bible, we choose to relate authentically because we know that God uses transparency for the transformation of our minds and hearts. Distinctive five, pray constantly. We seek constant conscious communion with our Heavenly Father. A pastor named Rich Valotis, who my wife turned me on to and who I actually quoted on Christmas Eve this year, uh, recently said this in a post, evangelical Christianity in the United States is often characterized by a deep desire to have Christianity pervade our culture, but not have Christ permeate our being. Friends, this distinctive strikes at the very heart of that. This distinctive says at the root of our Christian living must be a deep personal connection with Jesus Christ. And friends, the writers of scripture, they understood how important this was. They understood this calling. This is why right at the beginning of the book of Acts, right after Jesus had risen and appeared to them and then ascended into heaven, the very first thing his followers do in that desperate, uncertain moment is this. Acts chapter one, verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer. They all joined together constantly in prayer. You see Jesus is no longer physically with them, but they know they must stay connected to him, so they are constantly in prayer. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells the church, "Pray continually." He writes to the Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer. In Ephesians, he says, pray on all occasions. And Paul says this because he understands that when we lose our personal connection to God and begin to do this life in our own strength, we quickly move from relationship to religion. From relationship with God to religion for God. And this is not what he wants for for us. Many of you know that this phrase, Constant, conscious communion. It's a phrase that goes all the way back to one of the very first pastors of our church a long, long time ago, a man who served here for 30 years by the name of Al Wallen. Al used to say all the time, to live the Christian life, to walk with Jesus, to stay connected to the vine, we need constant, conscious communion. Pastor Carl, who knew Al and was a pastor following Al here and is one of my spiritual mentors, Pastor Carl says this, for me, constant conscious communion is really about a realization that I have a father who is there all the time, who is waiting to talk to me, to listen to me, and he cares about everything that's happening in my life, everything. Friends, I, I need that reminder sometimes. I need this distinctive to call me back into constant conscious communion with my heavenly father because sometimes I am tempted to drift away and do life in my own strength. This is why Cedar Mill Bible, who we're called to be is not just people who know the scriptures and do a good job at following all the rules. God wants us to be people who know him, who talk to him, who pray continually, who have constant, conscious communion with our Heavenly Father. Distinctive number six, worship fully. We believe Jesus is worthy of all our worship, so we worship him with all we are. Friends, this has been a challenging season. It's been a season when we've been forced apart, when we've been unable to gather physically on campus for over 10 months. Can you believe it's been over 10 months now? But in this season, there have also been some blessings. There have been some encouragements. There have been some reminders for us in this time that I believe God does not want us to forget. And one of them is this. Your worship of the one true, living God of heaven and earth is not limited to four songs and a sermon on Sunday morning. In fact, God is worthy of far more than that from you. Paul says it this way in Romans 12. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of that verse because I think he captures the heart of what God is trying to say to you and me. Here's what Peterson says. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. To put it plainly, worship is the act of ascribing value to something in a way that it impacts your whole way of life. It's saying this thing, this thing that I worship is such a priority to me, it matters to me so much, it's so valuable to me, that my life begins to revolve around it. My, my priorities change because of it. Last week, I took my kids to Mount Hood for a day of skiing and snowboarding, and it was one of those glorious days. It was snowing, The night before, it was snowing when we got there. It continued to snow, giant, flaky chunks of snow from the sky all day. And so every single run was just powder and powder and more powder. And we had a blast. And both my kids had such a wonderful time. But my son in particular just got it. And all of a sudden he learned, I think better than he ever has, how to ride a snowboard on soft, fluffy, powder snow. And so he was having the time of his life. And so we get back from this trip, this amazing day of skiing and boarding on the mountain, and he just cannot stop talking about it. Dax is just snowboarding this and snowboarding that. It was so fun. And then what he starts to do is he starts to say, okay, when can we go back up to the mountain again? How can we make it so that we can go snowboarding as often as we possibly can this year? Like, how can we save money? How can we change our schedules? How can I like do chores around the house so mom will let us go more often? I mean, and what you see from Dax in this moment is, obviously he's excited about snowboarding. But what that is, is I'll, I'll call it little W worship. It's little W worship. It's Dax, his value of snowboarding has gotten bigger, more, like he's valuing snowboarding more and more, so much so that he's starting to change and shift and sacrifice other things in his life to make snowboarding his priority. I'm a little worried that he might go live in his van and be a ski bum someday at this point. Let's pray that doesn't happen. But but here's what I'm saying. We're called to do that same thing, but in a greater way with God, and it's called big W worship. We're called to let the value of the Lord in our lives be so high that we prioritize him and his ways above all other things that we arrange, rearrange our lives and finances and priorities and, and wants and needs in order to serve him and follow him more. Why? Because we value him so, so much. And friends, this makes sense because the word worship actually comes from the old English phrase worth shape. To be shaped by the worth of something. And so here's our calling, here's our distinctive to let God's ultimate, immense, and incomprehensible worth shape our entire lives not just one part of our lives not just our religious lives god's worth is so great so enormous so huge that your work life home life family life marriage life single life school life recreational life online life and even your socially distant pandemic life must revolve around him that's our calling in the bible and because of that friends we at cedar mill bible church we believe jesus is worthy of all our worship So we worship him with all we are. We worship fully. And finally, distinctive number seven trust radically. Trust radically. We follow God into the uncomfortable. Now, I know that some of you are saying, Pastor Dave, I don't need to follow God into the uncomfortable. My entire life is uncomfortable right now. And so I'm not looking for any more uncomfortableness to add to my plate. And friends, I totally get that. But the point of this distinctive is that following Jesus is not just believing Jesus, believing in him, believing that he died and rose, gaining salvation, and then trying to live the most comfortable, risk-averse life that you possibly can until he takes you away to heaven. That is not the gospel. That is not what the scriptures say. In fact, when you read the Bible, you actually see the exact opposite. You see that the people who, who most faithfully followed God, those who trusted him and surrendered control of their lives to his direction most, Those people found themselves in some of the most scary, precarious, uncomfortable situations you can possibly imagine. It wasn't trust God and then get the easy, comfortable, good life. It was trust God and then hold on tight because he's gonna take you for a wild ride. I think of Abraham who was called to leave his homeland and go to a place that he had never seen before and God comes to him and says, will you trust me? Will you go? Will you follow me into the uncomfortable, Abraham? I think of Noah who God called to build an ark. And this command was just at his word, just at God's word that there was a great flood coming. And to the people around Noah, he must have seemed seemed nuts. He, He must have seemed crazy. And for Noah, there was a huge risk. And I'm sure there was lots of doubt, but God had asked him, will you trust me, Noah? Will you do it? Will you follow me into the uncomfortable? I think of Moses, who had found himself A nice, comfortable life out in the country, tending to livestock when God came to him and said, all right, Moses, how about it? You and me, let's go. Let's do this together. Let's go confront the most powerful man in the world with a message that he is not going to like to hear. Let my people go. But God, I'm not your guy, but God there's a ton of bad things that could happen, but God, there was no safety, there's no security in that decision. And God says to him, will you trust me, Moses? Will you do it? Will you follow? Will you walk with me? And then there's Esther, who because of her great beauty had stumbled into a life of wealth and pleasure and security, which was a rare thing for a Hebrew woman in the ancient world. But then God came to her and said, there is gonna be a great injustice It's about to happen to my people, and I need you, Esther, to risk it all and confront the king and do do one of the scariest things you can possibly imagine. How about it? Will you put it all on the line? Will you do it? Will you have faith? Will you follow? You see, friends, time and time and time again in the story of the Bible, God calls his children to have so much faith in him, to believe in him so fully and so radically that no matter what the possible cost is, no matter what the possible risk, they will discern his voice and follow his lead. Even when risk and popularity and earthly security and comfort are on the line hebrews 11:6 says this without faith it is impossible to please god for whoever would draw near to god must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him for whoever would draw near to god must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him and friends doesn't that sound great I love that. That's like I put it on your mirror verse. I'm gonna put that on my desk and read it every day because when I read that verse, I think to myself, of course I wanna seek God and be rewarded by him. That's exactly what I'm hoping for in my life. But then I'm reminded of this. Then I'm reminded of how Jesus described seeking God. Then I'm reminded of what Jesus said when he was inviting us, you and me, to follow him. Here's what he said, Matthew chapter 16. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You see, Jesus says the calling isn't always easy. It doesn't always feel safe, and it certainly won't always line up with what you want to do, but it is this. It is where you will find the greatest, most joy-filled, abundant life you can imagine. When you lose your life, you will find real life, abundant life, the Jesus life. And so friends, we as a church say, that's what we want. That's what we'll commit to. We will trust radically and follow our God into the uncomfortable. So that's it. Seven distinctives that we long to define and mark us as a church family. And as we go, let me challenge you to do something. Let me just leave you with one challenge. Here's my one challenge for you today. Would you please consider and pray about doing this? Sometime today, today, I'm asking you to do it today. I know that's bold. Sometimes I give you a week for your homework. Today, I want you to do it today. It's new tonight by midnight. Sometime today, before your head hits the pillow and you close your eyes, Go to our website, our church website, find our seven distinctives, and then read these seven distinctives again slowly. And as you read them, one by one, ask the Lord these questions. How am I doing? How am I doing, Lord? Am I following your spirit Am I allowing you, am I walking in step with your spirit and allowing you to produce this distinctive in me? Am I living the way that you're calling me to live? And then finally, and maybe this is the most dangerous question of all, God, how specifically are you asking me to lean into this distinctive, these distinctives right now in my life? Is there something you are asking me to change? Is there, is there a way you're asking me to shift? Is there something you're asking me to do? Because these distinctives are not just words on a website. They define who God is calling us to be as a church. And if we'll walk with his spirit and surrender to his lead and allow him to do these things in us, he's going to do great things in this world through his church. God bless you, friends. Happy New Year.